You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, and me. Jill Wine-Banks. Joyce will be back soon, and we miss her already. This week, we have some great topics. We'll be discussing Hunter Biden on the offense, suing everyone. The Trump legal saga continues to fascinate us, and I bet you too. And we have a segment on rare good news about SCOTUS arguments this week, and uh, also about election results that overturned Dobbs. As always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we begin the show, I want to talk about heels, high heels. And let's talk about whether we, like Nikki Haley, wear five-inch heels or we don't. And I'm going to start with you, Kim, because I know the answer from you. (laughs) I wear five-inch heels on a casual day. (laughs) <laughs> Listen, so like, I, I think I've mentioned this before. I, I never wore heels. I never wore heels until I was a practicing attorney. And I didn't see very, very many uh, other women attorneys, not as many as I should have when I was litigating. And I never saw black women attorneys when I was a litigator in Boston in the 90s uh, on my day to day. And I would often often get confused, you know, by judges, by clerks, by other attorneys who didn't realize that I was an attorney. So I started wearing heels thinking if I if I uh, make myself more vertically, you know, <laughs> substantial, <laughs> that, that would make me look more like a lawyer and get more recognition. It did not work. It didn't work at all. But I discovered that I loved heels. Like they were fun. I loved them. I liked how they looked. They were comfortable to me. And so ever since then, um, you know, some 30 years later, I still wear them all the time. And I absolutely love them. Uh, Y'all saw, I think we put on social media for one of our shows. I was think those white Chloe sandals I wore had a six and a half inch heel. They were great. And so I I towered over all y'all. It was fun. (laughs) And you did look great. And I wondered how you managed to stand and walk in them because (laughs) I've long since given up high heels. I started in college wearing really high heels. And even during Watergate, I had to be careful because people thought I was really tall because they would see a picture of me next to my trial partner, Richard Benvenista and Jim Neal, both of whom were more Napoleon-like. And so they thought I was really tall because I was the same height wearing heels. And so when people see me, they went, oh, I thought you were much bigger than that because they thought I was the average height of an average man. But um, nowadays I opt for much more comfortable shoes, but I do wear a high-heeled pin as one of the symbols for my book tour because I think that women have always had to do everything men do only backwards and in high heels. What about yes, you, Barb? Ginger Rogers. Yes, exactly. Oh, where to begin this conversation? I don't <laughs> want to, uh, you know, um, insult any of my sisters here. I respect your own views and your own fashion sense, but uh, I ha- I refuse to bow to the tyranny of the heel. Uh, there was a time in my career, um, I think, until probably the mid aughts, if that what we call it, uh, the early part of the of the two thousands, that I wore heels and a skirt and hose to work every single day like that was the uniform right of a lawyer 
And um, you know who really made it okay first to wear pants, a woman in power, I think, at least in Michigan, was our governor, Jennifer Granholm. And I am forever indebted to her because she made wearing pants look great. And so I started thinking, hey, if our governor can do it, then so can I. So I started wearing pants. And when you wear pants, it really opens up a lot of options, I think, for shoes. And so, um, you know, I wear... uh, you know, dress shoes, but they're all flats. They're all flat. And I'm very comfortable with my height, Kim. And so I'm happy to uh, uh, wear, I don't need the Rick DeSantis elevator shoes to uh, to feel all of myself. Um, you know, and as a runner, I've had years of like plantar fasciitis and all kinds of other ailments. So I'm quite happy in my flat shoes. And I'm so glad you mentioned Ron DeSantis and his lifts because uh, while Nikki Haley retorted to Ramaswamy that she uses hers because she can run in them and she uses them as weapons, uh, Ron DeSantis isn't doing the same thing. He's just being silly. So thank I think you they're for all being silly. That. I mean, weapons. What is that? She uses her shoes as weapons. What does that mean? Well, you know, five inch well, stilettos can be very dangerous. I know they're dangerous for me to walk in because I slip and fall in them once very dramatically in front of an audience, a live audience for oh. the Stephanie Miller Blue Wave tour show, I totally fell flat on my face. Oh, so, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yet another reason to avoid heels. Absolutely. Unless you're me. <laughs> and <laughs> can handle you, though, it. You do it so well. We saw a number of developments in the various Trump cases this week. We won't cover them all, but a few things I thought were noteworthy. Um, First, did you um, read about uh, Trump's testimony on the witness stand this week in the New York civil case? Um, You know, this is the case in which the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, alleges that the Trump organization overvalued properties by $2.2 billion for the purpose of obtaining loans and insurance. and I'm curious about your thoughts about about the testimony. Um, Kim, let me start with you. Did you think that Donald Trump helped or hurt himself with his testimony? <laughs> he did himself absolutely no favors. I mean, I, I wish, you know, I know Jill is our resident proponent of cameras in the courtroom I really wish that it was covered live on television because I was following (laughs) I was following like the live blog on MSNBC and like you know uh, social media just to get the latest from the reporters in the room and it seemed from just about every report that Trump did what at least I expected him to do which is to go in there and try to bloviate himself uh, into you know, making things go in his favor somehow. That's how he's succeeded in business and politics so far, just with his bluster and with presenting himself as bigger than he actually is. And when anyone stands in his way or anything, including an institution like the court, just trying to get his followers to, um, uh, just trying to discredit whatever the thing is that stands in his way in the eyes of his followers. Mm -hmm. And that included the court, the Mm -hmm. judge, the um, attorney general of New York, Letitia James, and anyone else. The problem is courts of law don't work that way. Yeah. And though he was so um, intent on making his own case, he was doing so at the chagrin of his attorneys who I, I loved how his attorneys kept asking the judge to control when the judge asked them to control their client. <laughs> Finally, yeah. Chris Keis was like, well, it's your courtroom. You do something. Yeah, it's yeah. like, wait, what? what? No, that's and, not and, it. Alina uh, uh, Haba even said, I will not um, uh, in- inhibit his First Amendment rights. Right, <laughs> right. which is code for there's nothing we could do. And in the process of all of his bloviating, he actually did himself harm by saying things like, yes, it was up to me to to look, yes. you know, to make these financial statements about how much I'm worth and and to give to Deutsche Bank 
essentially so that Deutsche Bank would give him bigger. I mean, he's admitting to the things that's going to cost him his business with all this bloviating. And I, I wrote a column saying that that was one of two ways. The second way we'll talk about a little later what happened at the polls on Tuesday, that Trumpism lost big when they faced, you know, really insurmountable obstacles, one being the rule of law in the courtroom. And I think that was really great to uh, great to follow. Jill, what did you think? I mean, as Kim said, you know, he in the courtroom on on the stand, he referred to the attorney general as a political hack and criticized the judge, you know, said you're very unfair and you're biased. You don't even know who I am. (laughs) Um, And he misquoted the judge saying, you called me a fraud. The judge didn't. The judge said that he had engaged in fraudulent conduct, which is not the same thing as calling him a fraud, although maybe that would also be true. I agree with Kim that he did himself no good. He also admitted one of the hardest things to prove, which is intent, when he said, of course I intended the banks to rely on my financial statements. Well, right there you have some really good proof. And the thing about him is that might have worked in front of a jury. But what he was doing was in front of a judge who was making the decisions. Insulting the judge is not a way to endear yourself or to get him to go your way. So I think in general, he did himself a lot of harm. And the judge at one point had to say, you know, I'm going to dismiss you and I'm going to just draw negative inferences from your refusal to answer questions. You're here to answer questions and you're not answering them. And that is really true in a civil case. You can draw negative inferences from a failure to answer questions, whereas in a criminal trial, you cannot. So I think he did himself a lot of harm. I think Ivanka was a little different story. She remained calm, pleasant. She didn't scoff the way he did. Um, So she presented in a much better way. But even she gave up, I think, at least one really big piece of information, which was saying that in order to get the loans approved, she and her brothers had to add their assets to the financial statements that his assets, his, the father, Donald Trump Sr., his assets weren't sufficient without theirs. That's a big deal, even if it wasn't in terms of the trial, in terms of his public image and the thing that he sells himself on is, I'm so rich, nobody can outdo me. So I thought that was a big deal from her. Yeah, and uh, agree with what you each said. One other thing I would add is, uh, one of the things Donald Trump said in the stand is, um, you know, the banks don't care. Nobody lost any money, so uh, no harm, no foul, which is just not consistent with the law. And the judge, every time he said it, the judge admonished him. I've already ruled on that. Stop saying that. <laughs> so- and, and Barb, can I add something? Because I've heard from some Trumpers now that X allows that kind of commentary. And they're like, so what's the big harm? What's illegal about it? The point is, he didn't pay the interest rate that he should have paid because he lied about his assets. And while the banks may have gotten repaid, and while they did get paid interest, they would have made much more money if he hadn't lied to them. So it is a crime. That's what fraud is and what it must be stopped. Yeah, and then the other thing that I think was um, notable was at one point the judge said to him, you know, this isn't a rally. Um, and although, you know, the judge is right in the courtroom, he's making a decision, but I think to Trump it is. And I think it could be you know, pure speculation on my part, but remember the judge has already ruled against the Trump organization in terms of the big fraud count. Um, a lot of what they're going through now is, uh, you know, res- resolving some of the other claims, but also assessing how much of the profits to disgorge from the Trump organization. Um, I think a big part of this is Trump has already kind of you know, discounted the judge. He's going to lose in the court, in the court of law. But what he wants to do is maintain his image and his reputation among his voters. And so he's going to go in there. He's going to double down. I'm the richest person in the world and these banks don't care anyway. Even when the judge is telling him, stop saying that. It makes no no difference to me whatsoever. He's just saying it because it matters to his voters. And so then he can just say that at the rallies and this is what gets reported in the press. And, you know, he gets to play the victim card all over again. So it's all about, you know, the campaign for him. It's all about the con. It's all about the PR. Well, we also saw some developments in the election interference case. So let's move on to that one. One development I know will set Jill off 
is the brief filed by the special counsel, Jack Smith, opposing cameras in the courtroom. What? Uh, everybody duck. Jill, what did you think of that response from Jack Smith? Duck for sure, because it's so <laughs> wrong. I, and, and I sort of, I mean, I'll be fair. Jack Smith based his decision and his arguments solely on existing law. And while it has been held constitutional for the federal courts under federal rules of criminal procedure to bar cameras in the courtroom, even still photographs, Mm -hmm. the fact that it might be constitutional to do that doesn't mean it's unconstitutional to allow it. And from my point of view, and I did write an op-ed in your hometown paper, Mm -hmm. Barb, um, and I'll put it on in our show notes, cameras are needed especially in this case. First of all, we are all victims of the alleged crime. We were all deprived of a fair counting, or the conspiracy was to deprive us, of a fair counting of all of our votes. So as victims, we have a right to be in the courtroom. Well, the only way we can all be in the courtroom is through cameras. And Although the argument was based on the federal rules of criminal procedure, I want to point out that there have been test programs in federal courts that have worked really, really well. And broadcasting is not unconstitutional, nor is it dangerous. The rules should change. It is um, cameras now, unlike you know when the, the rules were first put in place, are little teeny things that can be hidden behind a wall. If you're worried about the jury being seen, You don't have to show the jury, but you can see the witnesses. And to the extent that witnesses might feel like they don't want to be seen on camera, there's no one whose picture is not going to be seen by the American public. So putting them on camera isn't going to be any difference. We know that cameras work. Look at the results of the trial of um, Derek Chauvin, who murdered George Floyd. And the public reaction and acceptance of that verdict was largely because they saw the witnesses and their demeanor, heard their tone of voice, and they could see for themselves the guilt. And if cameras actually changed anything, George Floyd would still be alive. Derek Chauvin was being filmed by his own body cam and by a young woman who was in the sidelines, and he knew he was being filmed. It didn't stop him from killing George Floyd. So I don't think there's any risk to allowing cameras, and there's a lot of advantages to the system of justice and to the acceptance of verdicts. And I personally think that Justice Roberts should get the Judicial Conference to not say, we're going to have a committee look at this for the next three or four years. They should at least change it right now for at least these trials. And then when that works, they can do it for all trials, because I think America needs to see our system of justice in action. I think she wants cameras in the courtroom. What do you think, Kim? Do you agree? <laughs> I associate myself fully with my sister-in-law, uh, <laughs> my sister-in-law's comments. Yeah, I mean, I think that is, listen, even if you look at, say, the New York trial, which I said I wish was televised because I wanted to see what Trump did following along, in that case, there was a reason for the people of New York or uh, Trump's business competitors to be able to see that because there was harm in what he did say. He inflated those numbers. That meant that he got more money from these banks than he was entitled to get. That gave him a business advantage over his competitors. That was an advantage over someone, somebody like me who couldn't walk into Deutsche Bank and get that kind of loan with phony documents. That even in the principle of it, the reason that these uh, laws were put in place were to protect people. That's why the attorney general of the state was there doing it. She's acting on behalf of the citizens of New York. So I think the citizens of New York should have been able to see what went on in that courtroom if they weren't physically present in it. And I think even more the uh, case about Trump's uh, efforts to overturn the election, that affects every citizen in this country. It it is of, uh, I can't think of anything of more uh, importance for the, the general public to see. So I'm with Jill. Yeah, I think I am too. Although, let me just play devil's advocate and point out maybe some of the counter arguments. One is this, and and this was something that we said to each other in my office all the time, that when the stakes are the highest in the most significant cases, 
um, not, that's not the time to change the rules. That's the time to make sure you follow the rules by the book. You know, that I blame Jim Comey for um, violating that rule when he read the riot act about Hillary Clinton. Remember that when he announced that there'd be no charges and then went off on how awful she was. And um, like, that's not, that's, that violates the rules. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to talk about how bad the defendant the, or the person was when you refu- you know, refrain from bringing charges. Um, and so in this case, um, you know, the rules have always been one way. And I think, you know, to the extent Donald Trump wants to portray all of this as a witch hunt, I think changing the rules for his case um, might not be a good idea. But also, I do worry a little bit about targeting of the witnesses. You know, if their images are on television, then the haters are going to go after them. Um, and I worry also about the mockery. Um, you know, all the late night shows will show little clips and they'll change what's coming out of their mouths and they'll, um, you know, show a clip and then they'll make fun of it. You can see it on SNL, you know, there'll be some little testimony and then, um, you know, the, the, the host will make a, a, a witty little face and then they'll make some comment about it. So, uh, I think there's some potential downsides to doing it. But overall, I think I do agree with you. I think, you know, transparency is the best disinfectant. It's why we have C-SPAN. So members of the public can be, you know, participants in their government. Um, but I will predict it's not going to happen. So, Barb, <laughs> can I just counter at least one thing you said, mm-hmm. which is yes. the rule that Comey violated is a rule that is appropriate and should stay in place. We have had trial use of... Um, cameras in courtrooms and federal courtrooms and the judges who had those cameras said it worked perfectly they were very happy with it they would like to see it adopted so i don't think there's anything inherently bad about using cameras where i do think there's something inherently bad about comey having said what he said at the time he said it that was horrible Uh, and i also want to mention one of my followers um wrote me saying, okay, I agree we should have cameras, but if we can't, could we have actors playing the roles and sitting in a courtroom so that it looked official, but reading the transcripts? And while that isn't the same as seeing the actual person in and their demeanor on the stand, and you, you just can't capture that except by seeing it live, it's better than having a reporter say yeah, what right. they heard. So right. it's, it's, it's maybe a backup plan. Yeah, it's unfiltered. Um, well, they could do what they did. Um, when I was U.S. attorney, um, I supervised a major public corruption case out of Cleveland because the U.S. attorney there was recused from uh, because of a case he'd worked on when he was in private practice. And so I followed it very closely. I went down and watched some of the trial. And um, because there are no cameras in the federal courtroom, what they did is um, on the television news every night, they had puppets reenact key moments of the testimony by right. reading... Uh, transcripts of the dialogue. So, you know, you could do that. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it's better than nothing. It's not as good as cameras, but it is a step forward. Hopefully some producer is listening to us now and is going to say, oh, great idea. I'm going to create a show. Could even be profitable because I bet a lot of people would watch it. Yeah, maybe so. There was an interesting ruling in the election interference case this week when Judge Chutkin ordered Donald Trump to decide by January 15th whether he plans to use the so-called advice of counsel defense. Uh, I thought that was very interesting. Jill, what do you think is the significance of that order? Well, you're right. It's very interesting. And I hope our audience doesn't get lost in the, the legality of this, because what it means is he has to decide whether he's going to waive attorney-client privilege. And remember, there's a lot of lawyers who are his co-defendants and whose testimony would be very interesting, but he would have to waive it so that all of the correspondence he has ever had with those lawyers would be discoverable. And the reason that she ordered that he make this decision and set a date for it was so that there could be discovery in a timely way so that the trial isn't delayed and that the government gets to see all of the correspondence with lawyers. And also, he's going to end up having to testify if he uses that defense, because who better to prove that he relied on the defense of using his lawyer's advice but him? And so it's a big deal, both in terms of whether he would end up testifying, something that I salivate over the idea of, but his lawyers must be 
pulling out their hair at that thought. And seeing all of the discovery that would come forward from that would be very helpful to the government. So I, I think it's an interesting, very interesting decision. Yeah, and only fair, right? If, if he, he can use this defense if he wants to, but if he's going to, then he's got to provide them with discovery in advance so that they can be prepared. He can't have it both ways. So um, I was glad to see her do that because I thought that, it, you know, there's a possibility she could wait and that would delay the trial or uh, give an unfair advantage. Well, um, finally, I want to ask about the government documents case. Kim, I'll throw this one to you. Um, there is reporting that the special counsel may call as witnesses a number of Mar-a-Lago employees and contract workers, like maids and carpenters, and plumbers and chauffeurs, do you think that's a dangerous move uh, because they're loyal to Donald Trump? Or is it one that could be devastating? I mean, are they going to be able to literally air his dirty laundry? I always say, when you want to know what really went down <laughs> yeah, yeah, in a room, yeah, yeah. ask the people who are working yes. for a living wage who saw it, what is going down. The people who are not rubbing elbows with the fancy, uh, powerful people uh, who Trump depends on his own sycophants. You ask the folks who are in the room. You know, even with us, we deal with any number of people all the time, whether it's people at, you know, MSNBC who are who are um, doing our makeup or who are, uh, you know, just around producers, other people, they all hear everything that you're saying. These are people who we, you know, we love and respect and we all treat them nicely because we're nice people. But the number of people who are not kind to people who are in their presence when they don't know exactly what their job is, even the number of times that I've been asked at MSNBC by, you know, somebody, well, it happened at other networks more. Uh, actually, I don't think it happened at NBC, but, you know, someone comes in and asks me for coffee or something just because the lack of respect. These are what folks like that experience constantly. Yeah. They're yeah, either yeah, yeah. seen as invisible yes. or they're seen as invisible. somebody who is there to cater to you and not real human beings. So then when mm-hmm. you ask them what they saw, they yeah. will oh, tell yeah. you. Pull up they a will, chair, honey. <laughs> they, exactly. So I think it could be potentially devastating and you love to see it. The only thing that worries me is that many of them are still employed and they have to be careful that they don't lose their income because they get fired because they were honest. So it's a little bit tricky, I think, but some of them probably aren't there anymore. And so they have every reason to be honest. And Kim, you are so right about the people who you don't even pay attention to. You you ignore the fact they're in the room and you know, years later, they heard it and they will tell it. Well, I think the way you um, handle this strategically, if you're the prosecutor, is, you know, you most certainly follow the old rule that you never put a witness on the stand and ask a question to which you do not know the answer. And so the way you do that is you put these people in the grand jury before you indict the case. And so my guess is that as they were preparing this case, they called these witnesses to the grand jury, put them under oath and said, tell us what you saw. And um, you know, now they've got sworn testimony. So even if they try to back down later, they can use that to refresh their recollection. Uh, or if they claim to completely forgotten it, it can be used as substantive evidence. So I think that anybody who, you know, didn't don't, doesn't recall or didn't see anything helpful doesn't get called. But anybody who had their testimony locked in, who had something incriminating to say, um, you know, let's put them on the stand and pull up a chair and pop the popcorn. So I have a a t-shirt that says Detroit versus everybody. I have that one. (laughs) Yes. And it's meant not only that I'm I'm proud of my hometown, but also, you know, when people talk about it, I I, I will fight back. I will protect my hometown (laughs) as well. And I think we can talk, uh, we can call this segment Hunter Biden versus everybody because he has been suing everybody. And it's an interesting uh, response that he's giving um, as he faces a host of legal problems, some of which we've discussed on this podcast. Um, In the latest suit, he accuses former Overstock.com CEO and Mega Maga Patrick Byrne of defamation. Jill, what is that suit all about? And why do you think Hunter Biden is bringing it? And why now? 
I actually think the most interesting part of that question is, why is he doing it now? And also, just in general, defamation cases are really tricky because you are rebroadcasting and republicizing something negative that was said about you. And this got to the point of basically having been republished at the time of the Hamas attack on Israel and sort of accusing Hunter Biden of having been involved in causing Iran to help the Hamas do this horrible, horrible thing. So in one way, I guess it is the most recent thing that makes it so significant and so horrible that maybe that's why he did it. But he also is bringing more attention to it by having filed the lawsuit. Um, is it a clear case of it's a false statement? Probably so. Is it damaging to Hunter Biden? Yeah, it meets that category for sure. But why he chose to do it now when he's involved in defending himself on other things, I'm not really sure why he did. And I'd be interested in hearing why you and Barb think he did it right now. Yeah, well, Barb, what what about that? And whether it's that case or, or many of the other, I mean, he is suing everybody from Rudy Giuliani to uh, who knows who else. He is very litigious lately. Why do you think he's doing this? And, and why do you think he's doing it now? Yeah, well, some of the other lawsuits, um, just two, I can think of three others. Um, he sued the IRS, right, in September yeah, right. for disclosing his tax information. He sued Rudy Giuliani, as you mentioned, for hacking into his private digital data, you know, that laptop that uh, may be his or may not be his, but appears to at least contain some of his actual data. Um, and he also um, filed a lawsuit in September against a White House aide, a man named Garrett Ziegler, for um, hacking into his phone in violation of some com uh, California computer law. So he is um, suing everybody. And I don't know, you know, this he has um, as his new lawyer, Abby Lowell, who is a really well-respected lawyer and tends to be a fighter. Abby Lowell has represented Jared and Ivanka Trump, interestingly enough. He used to work at the Department of Justice. He has worked uh, on House committees and he's now in private practice in a large law firm. And he represents a lot of very prominent political actors. So I think he knows how Washington works. I think he knows how to go on the offensive and not just play defense. And so I think that is some of what this is all about. Um, though those appear to be, um, you know, valid lawsuits. And so I think he is sending a message that Hunter Biden isn't going to be anybody's whipping boy. Uh, he has been this target for Republicans for a long time now. And I think he wants to send a message of deterrence that if you take on Hunter Biden, uh, be prepared uh, for paybacks because uh, he's going to come after you. It's not going to be easy. Yeah, I think that that is right. I mean, I think, listen, the defamation case, uh, defamation cases are hard to win. But when someone falsely says you had something to do with the release of billions of dollars to Iran and that money was funneled to <laughs> Hamas and that's why we got the attack. I mean, that's, I mean, wow. Yeah, what to say um, when a lot of that is just demonstrably false, right? The money that they're talking about is our funds, Iranian funds that had been frozen uh, for years and as part of a diplomatic negotiation was released in order to be used for specific purposes it had nothing to do with Hunter Biden. It just so happened that this happened when his father was president, but that same sort of transaction happened during the Trump administration, happened during the Obama administration, happened during many administrations, things like that happen. Biden is not a, Hunter Biden is not a public, I mean, that's hogwash, right? And so, yeah, why not sue when something like that is damaging, particularly when you're facing this type of liability? I think it's a couple things. I think one, when you have lawsuits, you get discovery. And that can give you a tranche of information the same way that people, you know, in in the uh, Republican caucus of the House keep holding these hearings and trying to bring out information against Hunter Biden. It's like, OK, let's go to court. You know, let's let's see what you got um, for some of these folks. And I also think, look, 
suing people is what Donald Trump does. I think it's part of this that he's probably just fighting fire with fire. It's like, oh, if that's the way the opposition Republicans want to play, I can play that way too. I worry that it's not making him look great, um, that it may not be winning him any favors, but you know, he's, he's facing some tough uh, potential legal liability of his own. So it's not for yeah, me to not advise for him. Anything. Yeah, he's I'm not, I'm not for worried anything. about him. I'm not worried about him looking bad, but I am worried that he is, you know, publicizing these stupid comments. And there is a link, supposedly, that he got the money released in exchange for him getting a lot of money that partly went to his father. So there is that that is is bad. And there's the, the thing about the computer, he is actually saying it's his because he's saying, you released my personal data. And that means it had to be his. So that's an admission that, you know, hasn't been made before. So that's not such a great thing. But but I do think, you know, Barbara's right that he's sending a message, stop these false statements about me or I will sue you. And that's not a bad thing as a deterrent to others, uh, maybe even members of the congressional committees that are investigating him. So these lawsuits are civil, but Hunter Biden is facing some criminal liability, both for uh, tax issues as well as gun possession. I just want to ask both of you, do you think that this in any way can be harmful to him when it comes to those uh, those cases that he's facing? What do you think, Barb? I don't think so. I mean, I suppose... um you know, some can argue that this litigation is, is, is frivolous and designed as the weaponization of the courts or something, but they're all, they seem like well-founded complaints, actually. They're not frivolous. Uh, people are going after him, especially, you know, uh, the defamation stuff. If, if people are making up stuff about you, then that's that's what the courts are there for. So I don't think so. I, I think that um, he's decided to hire a lawyer who's going to be very aggressive and looking out for his interests. And this has been their strategy. And I think we have to wait and let him see how they play out in court. Yeah, I agree. And I don't see any counter to that. I don't see how it in any way impacts the cases the government has brought against him. So he is also facing a lot of smoke from uh, congressional Republicans, as I mentioned. Uh, Do you think these lawsuits are aimed in any part? Like I said, I think maybe some of it is, you know, trying to get discovery to sort of fight back against that, perhaps. But what do you think about that? And do you worry this can harm his father as uh, his reelection bid looms in next November? Jill? Uh, Yeah, I mean, this isn't great timing when your father is running for president, but the reality is the cases against him are pending. And I think that defending yourself and trying to get discovery, because, for example, this accusation that money was paid and went to his father uh, is something that needs to be rebutted immediately. And they aren't going to come up with any proof that that happened. And so while the absence of evidence is never proof of the positive, it does and could be helpful in rebutting some of the the falsehoods that are being out there. So I think it's maybe not a bad strategy. Um, Yeah, I guess I don't know, but I'm really offended by these subpoenas. I mean, they're really, and it's just, it's not just Hunter Biden. It's his, uh, um, Joe Biden's brother, James, and a whole bunch of family members. I mean, it really is a fishing expedition, a bunch against family members to just see whether we can find anything wrong with them. And and that's, you know, it it offends my sense of uh, fairness as a prosecutor when you know, you can't just investigate somebody without what's known as predication. That is, you know, a well-grounded factual allegation that someone has committed a crime. Um, or here, you know, it's an impeachment inquiry that Joe Biden has done something that would amount to a high crime or misdemeanor. And there just is nothing. And so his family is getting raked over the coals just because they want to fish and harass the president. And what I really think this is all about is... Um, numbing people to the idea of impeachment, that everybody gets impeached, it's all just a fishing expedition, and it becomes a toothless uh, tool for uh, the the House against presidents, and it becomes no big deal that Donald Trump was twice impeached. 
Well, I I would agree with that. I think that's ultimately at the end of the day what these uh, probes are about. And who knows, maybe we will learn new and interesting things from this Hunter Biden uh, discovery that will be coming in the um, weeks and months ahead. So with all the bad things we're talking about and all the abusive government that we've seen, let's end with a rare good news segment. Um, And that is, let's first start with talking about the arguments in SCOTUS this week, challenging a federal law that prohibits anyone subject to a domestic violence order from owning a gun. The case was U.S. versus Rahimi, and the defendant challenged the law as a violation of his Second Amendment rights. And the arguments uh, were based on Bruin, which broadened the restrictions on uh, uh, government being able to stop anyone from not having a gun. And I'm, I'm just wondering whether the arguments seemed to me that the court was gonna back off of its strict rules in Bruin and maybe say, yeah, the government can prevent certain categories of people from owning guns. Barb, can you talk about what the government argued and how it went? Yeah, it was um, a really interesting strategy, I think. You know, after the Bruin case of a couple of years ago, where the court said, if we want to restrict guns, um, the, the law has to be grounded in the history and tradition of the United States. And so, you know, people were very concerned that that meant that um, this statute was doomed that said, uh, you know, people who are under uh, protective orders um, for um, not to possess guns after a finding of uh, you know danger of domestic violence against intimate partners would be struck down because there's no, you know, where were we 250 years ago on that, right? There's no history or tradition of those kinds of laws. But the one argument the Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger made that I thought was really brilliant is instead of focusing minutely on the idea of domestic violence, instead what she said is, let's look at this in a bigger picture in terms of danger, people who pose a danger by possessing a firearm. And she said there is history on that. Um, And what's more dangerous than um, a, a domestic violence offender with a gun, and she even quoted the court that said, as this court has said all too often, the only difference between a battered woman and a dead woman is the presence of a gun. And so she said, you know, in the 1700s, there were laws that kept guns away from dangerous people, like people who are mentally ill or minors. And so if you look at this idea of this law is designed to keep guns away from dangerous people, then it should be upheld. And it appears that, you know, some of the justices, even the conservative ones were, you know, nodding along and buying it. So I think it was a really clever way to frame the argument. And I think it's one that's likely to prevail. And before I go to the next question, I just want to point out that the law that this is challenged here um, bars a lot of categories of people, not just those with domestic violence uh, orders, but people who have been convicted and have have a crime that's punishable by more than a year fugitives from justice, unlawful users or addicts of narcotics, which of course could impact the Hunter Biden case, persons adjudicated as a mental defective or who have been committed to a mental institution, military veterans who got a dishonorable discharge, illegal aliens, persons who uh, were convicted in any court of a misdemeanor of domestic violence, and et cetera. So there's a lot of people who are considered dangerous under this law. And so, you know, let's look him at the arguments SCOTUS heard that challenged it and talk about the arguments in terms of not just Bruin as Barb did, but the historical analog rule of Bruin and whether statutory interpretation is going to have to change if they say, well, there wasn't exactly domestic violence recognized because, frankly, women were chattels and had no rights, so domestic violence wasn't a crime. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I think I think more broadly, the Supreme Court is sort of maybe, maybe, and I, I, I will start by saying 
I always say it's a fool's errand to think you know how a, a decision is going to come out just from arguments alone. I've been wrong in doing that in the past. A, a great example is when I thought uh, the Trump administration would be able to put the citizenship question on uh, the census after oral arguments in that case, which made it seem like they could, and then it, they lost. Um, so you never know. But it seems to me that some of the justices, even those in the conservative majority, are kind of understanding how what the impact of making up rules on the Second Amendment, like they've been doing for a past uh, the past fifteen years is when the rubber meets the road, right? So first you had Heller, which establishes individual right to possess a firearm that, you know, just sort of ignored the whole part about the militia in the Second Amendment. And so you have the right, citizens have the right to possess a firearm for self-defense. That was the justification. Then you get Bruin and they kind of toss out self-defense, right? Because they didn't even... consider the self-defense aspect of it, they said, well, the only way that you can limit the the uh, Second Amendment right to possess a firearm is to prove that such limits are uh, consistent with the history and tradition in our nation. And the history and tradition is another, is a test that they've used in other constitutional contexts. And that's when everybody said, oh, because first of all, you know, we're talking about you know, AR-15s and 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 uh, high-powered handguns and all kinds of things that if you look at the historic analog, you know, it's a little different, whatever the laws that existed back then, you know, that covered muskets, that's already a difference. <laughs> but secondly, as you said, women did not have a right once, particularly once they got married, men could legally chastise, which is a, a fancy word for abuse them. It was legal, let alone not illegal so of course there were no laws taking people's muskets away when if they hit their wives that that didn't exist and i think the scotus is just like oh yeah this is this is not great if we're <laughs> for using that as our guide and maybe that it was them tapping their foot on the brake a little bit and saying okay and, and i think that um elizabeth prelogger did a fantastic job of pointing out you know throughout our history guns have been taken away from people they were taken away from soldiers that were discharged dishonorably they've been taken away from people who've committed certain crimes people who spoke out against the united states you know all, all kinds of things that cause people to lose their ability to hold weapons so keeping them out of the hands of somebody who has been adjudicated to be a domestic abuser. That's totally okay with history and tradition. And do you really want to be the court that says otherwise? I don't think so. So I think she did a magnificent job. She was terrific. And I I do take hope from how the judges, the justices uh, addressed questions and the, the hints that we got that they were going to allow this law to stay in place. Um, But there was also another piece of good news this week, which is, although the Supreme Court dismantled Roe, the states are restoring it one by one through elections and ballot initiatives. So it seems like democracy and reproductive freedom were winners in elections. And both Barb and Kim, I'd like you to talk about that. What did you think? And does that give you some hope for the future? Yeah, in fact, you know, there's a really interesting thing. Um, Michigan passed one of these constitutional amendments a year ago um, to protect reproductive rights. And now we're seeing it in other states. Ohio was one. Uh, you know, when you send it back to the people, as the Dobbs court said we should, well, this, that's the people have spoken. An interesting thing in Michigan is that some Michigan lawmakers have now filed a lawsuit um, to dismantle that right, saying that the people have exceeded their power in creating a super right that exceeds (laughs) that in the U.S. Constitution. Like, these people don't understand how democracy works. Like, you can always add more rights, right? You just can't violate the backstop of the Constitution. So, um... I, I think it's it was really heartening to see that when the people do speak and have a vote on this, that, um, you know, free, freedom wins. <laughs> I think they all missed the part in uh, in school where we learned about we the people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Didn't they watch Schoolhouse Rock? Didn't they listen to Schoolhouse Rock? Come they on. missed yeah. it. They miss Schoolhouse Rock. Yeah, I mean, I just think that it's really remarkable that anti-democratic response to a democratic move. But look, I think, as I mentioned before, I think Trump, Trumpism went up against the rule of law in Judge Angoran's, uh courtroom 
on Monday. And then on Tuesday, Trumpism went up against democracy and democracy spoke loudly. Um, I remember way back during the Women's March, remember that? Um, in Washington, D.C., and there were some signs, I need to paraphrase them, but there were some signs uh, that said something to the effect of, you know, the place where Trump bragged about grabbing women, well, that place can grab back. And it seemed to me that the polls on Tuesday were women grabbing back. They were grabbing oh, back their great. reproductive rights. They were grabbing back their uh, their democratic rights. And Trumpism, despite despite the really well-funded efforts by anti-abortion movements in those states, uh, in those elections, they weren't even close. They weren't even close. So that is telling people uh, something about the current electorate. And I think it's beyond, I think if we miss it, if it's if we think this was just about abortion, I think it was about rights. Because we also saw from school boards to state houses, people are tired of having their books banned. You know, there were people who at first heard, yeah, I like a pro-parental, you know, bringing back parental rights. I like that. But then once they saw what that meant, <laughs> they were like, no, no, this isn't what I meant. Uh, I want our schools to be responsive, but I don't want them banning the classics. And I don't necessarily like the crazy stuff that's going on. And they're pulling back. They're they're voting more for Democrats and rejecting this type of Trumpism from the local and state level. And I think that it'll happen at the federal level, too, next year. Yeah, I agree with you. It was a wonderful election result, both in terms of the initiatives, but in terms of Democrats winning in red states uh, for the Supreme Court, for governor, uh, there was a lot of that that showed that I think there's some reason to be hopeful. Now it's time for our favorite part of the show, answering your questions. We love hearing from you and we learn from your questions. So if you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tag us at at sistersinlaw podcast on threads or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, Keep an eye on our feeds during the week because we sometimes answer your questions there whenever we can. And today we have some great questions. The first one I'm going to ask you, Barb, comes from Terry. When are court's transcripts available to the public, for instance, Trump's trial testimony in the New York fraud case? Um, this is an interesting question. I think um, I remember when I first worked as a law clerk for a judge, there was this assumption that the court reporter, as they're taking it all down, are creating a transcript as they're typing. And they're not. They're actually taking it down in code, which enables them to be so fast. Like they're not actually typing a transcript. They use these bars and things. And it actually takes quite a bit of work to go back and decode what they've written in court, or if it's a recording, and turn it into an actual transcript that's clean. You have to read through it and make sure it's free of typos and all those kinds of things. Run it through the spell check or whatever it is they do. And so typically, um, those aren't done until someone orders it. Usually it gets ordered by the parties when there's an appeal. Now, in a high profile case, sometimes the lawyers will order weekly or even or daily or hourly transcripts if they want to be able to have access to the information and say, you know, read it back to a jury and quote the witness or file a motion in the midst of the trial. So it doesn't exist out there just yet to be used. Uh, my guess is in this Trump trial, what we'll see is when there is an appeal and when those um, parts of the transcript get filed with the court is when we might be able to see that publicly. But court reporters actually make a lot of money off of selling their uh, transcripts to the parties um, in the meantime, especially if they're asking for daily or hourly transcripts, they pay an expedited rate for that because that means the court reporter has to work after hours to generate those transcripts. And what they're taking is really like shorthand, which I learned in high school and found very helpful during a trial. I can quote exactly what a witness said because I take shorthand and I still know how to use it. So our next question is for you, Kim. 
and it comes from Robert in Canada. He asks, can an individual indicted and convicted of a crime serve as president of the United States? If so, would it take a constitutional amendment to change that? Uh, the answer is yes and yes. The Constitution sets out the qualifications and disqualifications to, I believe, the presidency. And I, that last part I put a little asterisk by. So the qualifications for president, and I think in 20, after 2016, a lot of folks didn't realize that these were the only qualifications, but it's that you are a natural, uh, natural-born citizen, that you are at least 35 years old, and that you win at least uh, the majority of the electoral votes in the election. That is it. There is no other qualification. Now, there is a disqualification, which is what we've been talking about a lot with the 14th Amendment. But as we've seen, that's working its way through the courts. So we don't actually know, and that's for participating in an insurrection or giving aid and comfort to enemies of the United States. The courts have to figure out exactly what that disqualification means. And we've talked about that in past episodes. But there's, yeah, you can be convicted of a crime and serve as president. There's absolutely nothing in the Constitution about that. And if you want that, you would have to put it in the Constitution through an amendment. Great answer, Kim. And then there are two questions that I'm going to link together because they both are related. One comes from Paige and uh, asks, commentary on the Hamas-Israel war often refers to rules of war. What laws or codification is this reference to? And the other one comes from Tina. How are war crimes investigated and where are they prosecuted? And so... uh, Let's look at the first question, which is, what are the rules of war? Well, there are actual rules that say how you declare a war and other things. But I think what you're probably referring to here are what are the things that are prohibited? That includes murder, mutilation, cruel treatment and torture, taking of hostages, intentionally directing attacks against the civilian population, or against buildings dedicated to religion, education, art, science, or the charitable purposes, or historic monuments and other things of that nature. Those are not allowed even in wartime. And then what happens once someone does those things? Well, there is an international criminal court which sits in The Hague and takes on these cases. The United States is not a member of that. And so it presents a problem when we see crimes committed by Russia in Ukraine or by Hamas in Israel, if it was by us, we would not be able to be prosecuted because we don't belong to that particular court. And that's because we feel that um, it would give too much power over American soldiers. So that's something that we should be looking at as to whether that should be changed at some point and whether we should agree to be bound by the rules of war. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkinstor, Barb McQuaid, and me, Jill Wine Banks. And remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using Hashtag Sisters in Law. Please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Helix, OneSkin, Olive and June, and Calm. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. And to keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review so that others will find the show. And I want to remind you that we have a new coffee mug. And it's already sold out, but we are ordering more. So if you go to politicon.com forward slash merch, hopefully you will soon be able to buy, along with our other products, a mug that we all love. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sistersinlaw. Ooh. Oh, scandal tour of Mar-a-Lago. I don't know. Right. I wouldn't want to go there. We can see the bathroom with the boxes. Oh, right. The Do not want to go to Trump's boxes. bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Well, I have a picture of the Nixon Oval Office bathroom which was part of when we were trying to find out where all the microphones were. 
one of the places we thought T- they might be was in the bathroom. So we T- took TMI. TMI. Yeah. Well, have you? Well, if you think that's TMI, don't ever read a, a biography of um, Lyndon B. Johnson. Oh yeah. You know, oh yeah. There's yes. a lot of TMI. Yeah, I know. In there. Yeah. He had horrible linen towels that were, you know, not not, not fluffy terry cloth. I mean, it was, Trump. Ugh. No, this Nixon. was no Trump. I'm sure oh. had terry cloth. This was uh, Nixon. Are you sure? You know what that proves, Jill? That proves he, he didn't wash his hands. I have the pictures. He didn't wash I have his the hands. pictures. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, oh. he's always had terrible taste with like gilded stuff yeah. and like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what yeah. he he actually and... had a. It's like he had some money growing up, but not enough to really understand how super wealthy people lived. And so his um, his childhood imagination of how a super wealthy person lived with like gilded, you know, yeah, gold yes. it's like a cartoon idea yes. of a rich person. Yeah, yes, with like the money with the bag. He probably has like a bag with like a dollar sign on the yeah. front. Sitting on his- <laughs> it's like that's it's so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all for show. It's all oh PR. Oh my god.